Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, Lawless Files listener. My name's Chris Holsey, and I'm the host of the true crime podcast, Small Town Forgotten, where we also feature a cold case murder in Southeast Missouri. On Friday the 13th, 1989, a husband and father of twin girls was beaten to death on a street in Bonterre, Missouri. Like Bob Miller, we deep dive into eyewitness reports, expert testimony, and original case files. When there are witnesses, a murder weapon, and a taped confession, how exactly does a murder become a cold case? Check out Small Town Forgotten anywhere you get your podcasts. Around the car to the driver's side and opened the door, and uh, that's when he saw the shit. Is Mark Abbott a suspect in this killing? No, sir, not in Vietnam. Said that his friend might have been a policeman or a sheriff or something like that. I didn't take but a split second. I said, huh? That's not Mark. I said, that's my heart habit, or bad habit, or vampire, or brain. Why was that not done? So he's like, hey man, I saw this murder in the news. They don't know who did it. Let's tell them Josh did it. I don't know. I, I don't know that they weren't. It seemed like pretty much anything was for sale down there. I, I don't know. At the right price. He said, uh, you know, he's Bill's been in there long enough. You know, he's made enough money. He says it's about time a younger man gets in there. Like you, you can get in there and make some good paychecks from the bullshit. They never investigated me. They merely put me on trial and told the jury they had. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, We're here this afternoon with Josh Kieser. For those who have uh, been living under a rock, (laughs) Josh Kieser um, is the wrongfully convicted uh, person in the Michelle Lawless murder case. He was exonerated in 2009 for a crime he did not commit. He actually received an actual innocence ruling. And he's here to kind of catch up with us. It's been a while since we've heard from Josh, uh, several episodes, uh, a month or two. And uh, we've been working on a lot of different things. Josh has been working on a lot of different things. And uh, so we just wanted to catch up, particularly after the last episode where we talked about perjury and we brought in expert professor o'brien from the university of missouri kansas city um so i know josh has some some thoughts on that and uh we wanted to catch up with josh on some other things like i said we haven't talked with you uh in in a while josh um and we haven't talked to you since uh we uh actually had uh the tom beardsley episode and then later we had the episode where we talked to Catherine maya the reporter and uh so I kind of wanted to first start with that, if you don't mind. I, I felt personally that those both of those episodes were, were big in a number of different different ways. The Beardsley episode, um, the uh, Tom Beardsley, if you recall, was the uh, chief deputy under Bill Farrell at the time of the Lawless murder, and he explained how he wanted to go check Josh your alibis in Kankakee. He was forbidden from doing so. And shortly after he resigned from, from the department. Um, what were your thoughts on that episode? What, what were your takeaways? Uh, do, 
do you think it was as important as as you know I, I thought it was? Oh, thank you for asking the question. And um, before I answer, if you wouldn't mind, it's been a while since the uh, the Lawless Files um, community has heard from me, and uh, I just want to um, give my appreciation that you know that it's been some time. You know, what was it? Were we talking over maybe a month or two, maybe mm-hmm. more? Yeah. And I just want to um, voice my appreciation for everybody that's following the series and that's uh, gotten other people to follow the series because. The, um, the larger the following, the greater the impact. And uh, Michelle deserves her story to get out. And I know, I realize that uh, when I'm on here, we're talking about me, that um, perhaps our detractors or even some of our supporters may feel like, you know, we're making this about Josh. We're making this about me. And the reality is, in some ways, we are um, because the story does involve me. Um, that's, that's just, uh, that's a natural organic part of the story. But the truth is the reason why we highlight these things and we talk about these things and we continue to have this conversation is to show how important it is to get it right this time and to uh, pursue the right outcome for Michelle. That's our goal. That's our end game. And I, I, I just, I really appreciate uh, people who are following it and I hope that that understanding grows over time because uh, Michelle Lawless and her family deserve that understanding. And I would greatly appreciate it. Now, as um, getting to your question, uh, absolutely, Bob, uh, conclusively. Uh, Beardsley's uh, interview was, was incredibly important and revealing. And I think uh, reveals um, some elements of the case that need answers. Um, it's not just that he gave answers, but they created questions. Uh, and they created, um, they offered evidence, insight into the history of the case, um, into Bill Farrell's psyche, into his mind, into the first moments of the investigation. Um, the, uh, we, we were able to see through Beardsley's testimony or his interview with you, rather, uh, 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 behind the scenes. Um, we were able to see that, in fact, that there was no transparency in the beginning of this investigation, that it was closed doors behind Bill, Bill Farrell's office, behind his door in his office, it was closed doors with him and Mark Abbott. And it created a question, why? Yeah, let me interject. Let me interject real quick. So, just to refresh people's memory, um, uh, Beardsley told me that um, you know he sent Mark Abbott back to the uh, the the jail to get some uh, elimination fingerprints, and he wanted to interview him again. So, before he goes back, you know, he he goes back to the scene real quick. This is Beardsley to see if there's any footprints or anything that Mark Abbott was talking about uh, near the crime scene. Couldn't find any, but it goes back to the jail. And he visits with Brenda Shivitz and she says, well, I'm going to be on the case and uh, I'm going to go in there in a minute. Abbott's already talking to Bill Farrell. And so um, that was already happening. There was a private 
some sort of private interview with Bill Farrell and Mark Abbott that, uh, to my knowledge, was not documented. It, well, um, then your, your knowledge is accurate uh, because it was not documented. Uh, for your listeners, so I can be absolutely clear on this, um, I am the longest living um, source of information in this. I have, I have, have scoured all the paperwork, uh, everything in uh, the history of my case. I've looked at it at one time or another, and I have a memory of nearly every aspect and every element. And I've, you know, I've gone over everything uh, since Beardsley's um, interview with you. And, you know, I've discussed this in, in, in length with you, right? Because uh, we're, we're, we're the investigators primarily in this case now, Bob. And neither one of us um, uh, have been able to find uh, a single reference to that um, in, in meaning that uh, it creates another constitutional violation. It creates a, um, a Brady violation in my case because Bill never disclosed that. It was previously unknown that Bill Farrell, uh, well, there, well, there was re one reference, right? But, but it came across fictional because it was Mark Abbott that actually referenced that he had had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Bill Farrell. Outside of Mark, Abbott, Mark Abbott's referencing of that uh, in, uh, in a deposition, it had never previously been known. And it certainly wasn't known in 1993 and 1994 when I was undergoing charges and then um, my trial and was convicted. Um, so that's, that's another example of Bill Farrell's um, unwillingness um, to, to, to investigate and prosecute Michelle Lawless case with, with transparency. It's another example of him disrespecting the Lawless family in the investigation as well. And, and, and so, but there are other elements uh, in, in, in Beardsley's interview that caught my attention. Uh, we've spoke in length about uh, his term twist in the wind. He was going to let this kid twist in the wind. And for the casual listener, um, they may not understand the significance of that statement. It's basically saying we're going to let this um, meaningless, worthless, no one just go to jail because it's not going to matter to anybody is essentially the significance of that statement. That's basically what... Uh, Beardsley was saying that Farrell was saying to him that the truth didn't didn't matter in this case. And when we're having this interview, um, we're having it in the backdrop of perjury, which is a demonstration of the truth being dismissed and not mattering. It's it's a demonstration of the core tenet and objective of the justice system being trashed and, and, and discarded. And so when you're telling your chief investigator who wants to investigate an alibi, Beardsley wanted to investigate my alibi. He wanted to go to Kankakee and speak with my, my witnesses, 
um, get a lay of the land, get an understanding, you know, how long is it going to take Beardsley to drive from um, the exit to Kankakee or specifically Bradley, Illinois within Kankakee County where my, where my, um, my alibi put me. Uh, he, he wanted to have an understanding of the entire, all the, all the elements and the entire layout and landscape of the case. And Bill Farrell told him no. Yeah. And, and again, just to refresh the memory for those who are listening, because I know there's a lot of details uh, throughout this entire case and people may have forgotten, but um, uh, Beardsley is the one on that November 11th meeting, they had six or seven people come to a meeting, uh, detectives or officers of some sort. And Beardsley is the one who named Mark Abbott as a suspect. He would not let that meeting stop without, without noting, I think Mark Abbott's a suspect. He's changed his story multiple times. Mm -hmm. And so from, from his very first interview, Tom Beardsley was suspicious of Mark Abbott and really thought that he was a, a suspect. And so now you have down the road, you have uh, Beardsley looking at what's happening in this case and just like, I, I guys, you know, he's, he's kind of saying, I don't know, man, I, I think we got to check this out. I'm, I'm not, I'm not convinced. And he wants to go investigate mm -hmm. your alibis, you know, like you said, in Kankakee, who put you there at the, the, you know, real close to the time of the murder. And he was absolutely, you know, told absolutely not. And it's not just so that listeners can understand, Bob. It's not just that he told Beardsley no. It's that he never sent anybody else to do it. Mm -hmm. Because Bill Farrell being the sheriff, he had the power and he had the right to tell Beardsley specifically no. There's nothing in itself unethical about telling Beardsley no. Mm -hmm. What's unethical, what makes it unethical, um, and what makes it um, nefarious in nature is the fact that Bill never sent anyone else. And I, and I, I think that it's important for your listening audience to understand and your viewing audience uh, as, as regards to this interview to understand that law enforcement, Scott County, never investigated my alibi. They never investigated the landscape of the case. They never investigated the time that it took to get from point A to point B. They never offered a reasonable explanation as to why or how I would apparently, um, because I had, uh, I had records um, from Wendy's restaurant putting me at the surrounding dates in Kankakee when I worked or in Bradley, which is in Kankakee County, where I worked at the time. And Scott County never offered an explanation, nor did they ever investigate or attempt to understand an explanation as to how or why I would drive all the way from Kankakee County to Benton and then go get someone else's car, take that to a crime scene, then go back, get my own car, apparently, and then drive all the way back to Kankakee. Oh, and, and let's let's not forget you stopped by the uh, the payphone that's sometime in there. Yeah, apparently I stopped by a payphone and needed a ride somewhere when how why would I need a ride somewhere if apparently if I have a car like none of this made sense. Chris, if I had Christy Nail's car, 
Why would I need to be at a payphone demanding someone else take me somewhere? Yeah. The 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 lunacy and the the inconsistencies that existed in this were were um, evident from the beginning, and I believe that Beardsley noticed that, saw that, and wanted to question it, because ultimately his responsibility as a law enforcement officer. The responsibility of every law enforcement officer isn't merely to charge and to to and to solve or quote unquote solve a crime. The the responsibility, the duty of a law enforcement officer is to conclude an investigation on truth and on facts, on sense, um, to deduce by logic and understanding, specifically when you're dealing with a case that involves the, the, the type of victimization um, in this case, um, be it a murder or a rape or a molestation, when you deal with something so sensitive that encompasses so many, uh, it's your responsibility to conduct an ethical investigation. And Beardsley had noticed that was not happening. And that's not just my conclusion. By listening to him, uh, I think it's, I think it's, it's self-evident because he then walked away from law enforcement. He walked away from uh, his life's goal uh, and, and decided it wasn't something he can, he can um, do any longer under Bill Farrell. He eventually, uh, from my understanding, um, came back to law enforcement, but it was after some years. And I imagine, um, I, imagine I, can, I can just imagine he had to ask himself some questions. Now, <clears throat> that being said, you know, we've talked about this as well, and I'm sure Beardsley, he's a grown man. I, I, I'm sure that he would understand my feelings about this. Uh, he had the questions like, who's going to listen to me? You know, Bill Farrell is a powerful man. And, and uh, he never voiced his uh, objections. You know, I wasn't aware of these things um, that Beardsley revealed um, to the extent that he revealed them until my appellate process with my attorneys at um, Brian Cave, Leighton Paisner began. And then some of it I wasn't even aware of until your interview. And it, it's, it's, um, to me, that's, that's something that, you know, he has to live with. I, I, I think that it's good. And I appreciate that he's coming forward now because um, it helps us get to a place that we need to get to in this case. Again, not just because of me. I, you're, not, you're not wrong. In your recent interview, you point out that I have never really received justice. People who think I did simply because I got out of prison and I got some money think that, I, that I've received the justice I deserve. They're, they're living in a fictional world. They're living in a, in a, in a world of their own making. That's, that's, that's not true. I've, I've, I've never gotten the justice I deserve, and, and that, will, that will continue to be the case for me personally. And uh, until uh, Michelle Lawless is killers, until she gets the justice she deserves, truthfully, I'll never get mine um, because I'm, I'm linked with her um, in, in history and heart and mind um, involuntarily or linked forever. So that's how I see it. But at least he came forward. But still, you know, uh, it was his responsibility as a law enforcement officer to come forward. Josh went on to bring up another name of someone in a position of authority who has since come forward with information, but didn't really do everything he could back then. 
and that's Bill Stokes. He was an investigator with the Scott County Prosecuting Attorney's Office who told Josh he personally delivered exculpatory evidence, specifically a recanted statement by one of the jailhouse informants to Kenny Holsoff, the prosecutor. Gentlemen, you're, you know, to both these, to both these um, men and, and others in this case, cops in this case who may have similar information that they haven't come forward with yet, you know, be it um, potentially uh, Brenda Shivitz. I think we all agree that Brenda knows a lot that she's never said. Bill, Bill himself, Bill Farrell himself. These are law enforcement officers that, that have information that know things. And, you know, we're not talking about people who worked at Walmart or the local quick trip or um, high school where you, you make a decision to be a law enforcement officer. You make a decision to be an investigator for the state, to take this responsibility upon yourself. That's your decision. And with that comes the responsibility to defend the integrity of that, of that position. And uh, I feel like um, it's Beardsley doing that now. And has he done that um, you know, in other ways since? Uh, definitely, I mean, we can all see that. But you know, he had a responsibility to do that then. And I don't think that he, looking back, would uh, argue with that. He comes across as a very genuine and you know, an honest man now, and I, I appreciate that. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Well, speaking of that, the similar situation um, uh, with Catherine Maya um, and the information that she came out with um, here in my interview with her, which I didn't know and nobody knew until th that interview. But uh, according to her, she again, she was the reporter who covered the trial. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a week or two before the trial, <clears throat> she did a feature story on Bill Farrell. So uh, she um, she did this feature story, and she knew she was going to be covering the, the the murder trial in in a week or two, and and was asking him questions about that. And she mm -hmm. says during that interview, Bill Farrell told her when she asked the question, you know, what's the connection? Bill Farrell told her that they had met at a party. And so when mm -hmm. you fast forward to the trial, uh, it wasn't known by anyone. Mm -hmm. that um that that information was going to come forward from Chantel Kreider what was it the fourth day of the trial mm -hmm. um surprise witness uh that wasn't known to anyone and uh so that that just indicates that 
it implies that 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 was in the works, um, that it was going to be uh, brought forward, that this connection was made a, a week prior to to the murder. Well, it goes. It's okay. So I understand your language, okay. But I, if I may, may I be a little bit more um, direct and blunt, Bob? It wasn't that the connection was made. It's that the um, connection was pre-made, that it was manufactured. Let's be clear. It has been established that I was never at that Halloween party. Not only was I never at that Halloween party, the um, person, Todd Mayberry, that uh, Chantel Kreider said that I resembled, I do not resemble and never have resembled. Todd Mayberry and I have never resembled each other. Um, you know, there, there are people over time that apparently I have resembled, I guess, um, for years. <laughs> I had, um, when I was traveling the highways, I had people um, often ask me if I was Aaron Paul or if I had been told that I look like Aaron Paul or they would actually say Jesse Pinkman. Yeah, from you know, Breaking I, Bad. Yeah, from Breaking Bad. Apparently, I, you know, I look so much like him that my mother, you know, mothers never believe that their children look like anybody, you know, because their children are unique and special. You know, they're one of a kind. <laughs> and then my, I told my mother this. She said, well, let me see a picture of this guy. And I showed her a picture of him, and she said, yeah, yeah, you guys do look a lot alike. And I said, well, at that point, it's sold, you know, to the point that me and my buddy at one point in time, we thought this was years ago, like 10, 11 years ago. I almost intentionally broke the law. I know that's a shocker to the lawless files people, but I almost intentionally broke the law and got a fake ID and tried to pull off the Aaron Paul lookalike in Vegas to see how much I can get away with. <laughs> but uh, so there are people over time, you know, what I'm saying that we resemble. Um, that's, 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 that, that element is acceptable, but at no point in time, just so I'm clear, have I ever looked like Todd Mayberry and at no point in time, in fact, I'm confident in saying this because I spoke to Don Worley about it. Have I ever re uh, resembled anyone at that party? And Don Worley was one of the two women who hosted the party. Her and Lacey Warren. I haven't, I, I, at no point in time, I, have I ever resembled anyone at that party? And in fact, I mean, I guess information has come out since. I guess Chantel's saying that uh, maybe, you know, Mark and Matt or Kevin were at the party. But from my understanding, um, you know, Dawn and, uh, and Lacey would say that they weren't at the party. So I don't know where even that's coming from, from Chantel. Um, but so that, anyway, so that's established as being manufactured but we you know up until up until a certain point we only have really had the ability to say that it was manufactured you know by Chantel Kreider and that she deliberately lied to um I don't know maybe to be the hero for her friend I mean there there's 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 different um conclusions that someone can come to I know that she says she quote unquote made a honest mistake. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, people have probably seen the episode um, between me and her, the interaction between me and her on, on the case with Paul was on um, the episode called the long road home. Um, and 
what people don't see is her and I having a conversation after that episode when it was finished filming. Um, several conversations where I told her, you know, I don't, I don't believe you. <laughs> I don't believe it was a quote unquote honest mistake. There's nothing honest about that mistake. And um, I forgive you. And I'm willing to offer you love and acceptance and support. I just need you to tell me the truth, the entire truth, the whole truth. And she has been unable to do that or unwilling. And it's, it's actually very heartbreaking at times for me because then I see when she gets on the discussion group or when I was in the discussion group, I would get on there and she subjects herself to getting uh, ruthlessly attacked. Now, we discover something else in that interview with Catherine Maya, as you pointed out, that a week before my trial, Bill Farrell told Catherine Maya, a journalist who is now on the record with you, that they had already put me with Michelle Wallace at this party before anyone else ever knew. Bill Farrell himself acts shocked at my trial. He acted like he had no clue. Where did this come from? Where did this information come from? I didn't know. And he was lying. Because according to a credible source, Catherine Maya being a credible source, he'd already said that he was going to present this idea. I think that he sat on it because he knew that it was a deliberate lie. And he knew potentially that it could come back on him if things didn't completely turn his way. Yeah. And just to interject there real quick, the only reason that that worked, the party thing is because it came so late in the trial. Cause exactly. if you're, if you're, if your defense attorneys would have had time to really, you know, um, well, it's not the only reason that it works her and, and, um, and, and they can find they because uh, Rosner already uh, David Rosner already knew. Yeah, um, I mean, but I, I wouldn't say it's the Todd only Mayberg. reason it didn't work. I would say that that is a significant reason yeah. why it worked. But also um, what people may not understand or know is that there was a police report that existed that indicated that there was, in fact, a. Um, altercation right, right. with Michelle Wallace with another individual at the party and that police report was accessible and, and, and it was had by my defense we possessed it my, my defense um, possessed it during the trial they were able to get a hold of it after um, I believe um, Chantel came forward and in that police report so in that police report what we have is a piece of evidence that could have been presented to the jury. What we also have in that police report is two more pieces of evidence that could have been presented to the jury. We had Todd Mayberry's name. So Todd Mayberry could have been presented. That's right. In the police report, Todd Mayberry admitted in that police report, Todd Mayberry admitted that it was him. Well, it wasn't a police, it was an investigative report, but it, well, investiga the investigative report was taken by a police officer. Though. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a police report. That's just, that's just being yeah, tomato. So God. as I stated in that episode, uh, Todd Mayberry was interviewed. Yes. But you additionally, know. additionally, um, the other um, piece of evidence that we had in that police report or investigators report, whatever you want to you know, call it, was the investigator's name. 
So they could have called that person as well, that law enforcement officer. So technically, what was, what was presented to Judge Stanley Murphy was the opportunity to um, offer rebuttal evidence in the form of a report, a um, uh, Todd Mayberry himself, the actual assailant and, or the accused assailant, um, and the officer. And uh, Kenny Holshoff, and uh, primarily Kenny Holshoff, I would say Christy Baker Neal, but primarily Kenny Holshoff argued against that, argued that it wasn't necessary, that, uh, you know, they, why, why should we? And, and you they, know, they considered uh, Don Wyndham, uh, if he testified, it would be hearsay. So he was not allowed to testify on that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's hearsay if Don Wyndham testifies for me, right? But it's, it's absolute truth if he's testifying against me. It's hearsay if Don Wyndham has something to say that may help my defense. In the, and at that time, I was supposed to be presumed innocent. But it's absolute truth that Don Wyndham tells a complete and utter lie in, in describing our, my transfer from Kankakee to Scott County. And he told complete and utter lies in that, in that the report and in his depositions and in his testimony. So you see how that works? The same witness is, is considered um, honest and integral and worth believing, and they, we should put this person in front of the jury because they are a, they are they're an upstanding citizen doing their job. But if that's but if that person has something that's truthful that could help the defense, that's nah, just hearsay, Your Honor. Just hearsay. That was Kenny Holshaw. That's his way of conducting himself, his unethics, and conducting himself. Yeah. Any but trial. You're, but you're, here's you're, the thing. So Stanley Murphy had things put before him. And he, you know, Stanley himself, Judge Murphy, um, agreed with um, Holshoff. So Holshoff did get his way. And we were not allowed to present those. So all we basically had now, all that all the jury ever saw was some girl that got up and played the victim role. And, and didn't just say these heinous things, but also offered uncharged crimes. She accused me of basically, she, she, she used the word slap in the back of her hair, which has never made any sense to me. Um, basically, she's accusing me of slapping her in the back of the head because I attempted to come on to her. And then I then um, you know, came at um, her and Michelle aggressively. Um, she's accusing me of that after I attempted to, you know, come onto them. So she's basically in, 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 in modern understanding, accusing me of sexual assault because I tried to come onto them and then I slapped her in the back of the head apparently. And the only thing the jury heard was this perjury, was this deliberate perjury. And that's exactly what it was. But the question, but see what Catherine Maya offers us is a behind the curtain. She pulls back the layers and she shows us the origin of the perjury. Because you're right, it was the fourth day of my trial. It was, it was June 16th on Thursday of 1994 when that, when, when Michelle, I mean, um, when Chantel Kreider came forward with that information. And if memory serves me correct, you can correct me on this. Um, when she came forward with that information, while my attorneys and Holshoff were discussing it, I'll just ask you, 
who was she putting alone in a room with? Yeah, Bill Farrell. She's putting alone with Bill Farrell. So what you basically have here is um, the man who a week prior to my trial, and while everybody else is shocked by this information, Chantel Kreider is alone in a room with the man, with the sheriff, the man who uh, is in charge of the Michelle Lawless investigation, um, alone with that man. And we're supposed to believe that um, everything in there is legal and, and untainted. What I believe what we have here is sheriff who manufactured evidence. Again, there's several instances where he manufactured evidence with, with witnesses. Um, he had witnesses sign pre-written statements. He offered deals. He refused Beardsley an opportunity investigation. He finds himself sitting alone in a room with Mark Abbott. He lied about the notebook. He perjured himself um, in his uh, depositions about, and, and in his trial testimony about the notebook, uh, about Brenda Shevitt's notebook book and about um, the Ray Ring um, document and about Mark Abbott being a suspect. And then he, um, he purges himself every time he says he was previously unaware of uh, Chantel Kreider's uh, statement, because according to Catherine Maya, he was previously aware. But the reality is he was so unethical and he lied about so many things. And he's perjured himself several times because he's gone on the record several times, not just in interviews, but in depositions and in trial testimony that um, he qualifies him along with Brenda Shivitz and Mark Abbott. And I, you know, I would, I would argue Don Wyndham due to the um, erroneous reports that he gave in the uh, um, trans in my transfer from Kankakee to Scott County and his report, he claimed that I uh, said I was a good shot with a gun and he associated it with gang activity and a handgun. And he claimed that, um, that uh, him, uh, that uh, Don Wyndham, myself, and um, I believe was an officer um, Hinton or uh, um, that we drove by uh, Christy Nail's house and I pointed at it and identified it. Okay, so I wanted to address what Josh says here about Don Wyndham and include some context about other things that happened in the case and about things that Josh has told me. If you remember from previous episodes, Wyndham was in the car when he and a Scott County deputy transported Josh from Illinois to the sheriff's office in Scott County. And Josh talked a lot, way too much on the drive as Wyndham was trying to get him to open up. At that point, Josh didn't know about any murder charge. He believed he was being held on an assault charge from Sykeston. So Josh talked about being in a gang. And he talked about growing up and in context of his upbringing, Josh also talked about being in the Boy Scouts, where he learned how to shoot a rifle. Josh says that an instructor told him that he was a good shot. Josh said he was not talking about a handgun. Wyndham presented this information in the investigation as if Josh was familiar with and skilled with handguns. But Josh says he never said he was a good shot with a handgun. So I'll read this from the transcript. The question to Wyndham was, quote, did you inquire of the defendant whether he was familiar with the use of handguns? Yes, Wyndham replied. What did he tell you? Wyndham said, quote, he said that he was a very good shot, end quote. Again, Josh strongly asserts he never told Wyndham he ever fired a handgun, much less being a good shot with one. This testimony is material to the case 
because it demonstrated to the jury that Josh was experienced with the type of weapon that killed Michelle. It's not material in the sense of Michelle's death because Michelle was shot at close range, so it wouldn't have mattered if he was a good shot or not. Now, Wyndham has admitted to me that he made mistakes in this trial. I explained earlier in the podcast, I didn't think that Wyndham was a part of a cover-up because Wyndham testified under oath as disagreeing with Bill Farrell that that they were not ready for murder charges. Wyndham, if you recall, said he believed he was bringing Josh back to Sykeston for a polygraph, but Farrell changed that plan once Josh was in custody. Wyndham also testified that he didn't have access to the reports filed by other officers in the case, and he told me personally that he didn't know that Beardsley had suspected Mark Abbott of being involved in the murder, although documents show that Wyndham was in that early meeting where Mark was identified as a suspect. Wyndham also testified that Bill Farrell was in charge of the investigation. But just because Wyndham doesn't appear to be involved in covering up a murder, and by that I mean intentionally protecting other suspects, that doesn't mean he wasn't giving false testimony and trying to make pieces fit that didn't actually fit. There's evidence of this when Wyndham flew down to Louisiana to address snitch Sean Mangus after other snitches had recanted their testimony. So rather than reassess, Wyndham doubled down. He clung to the lie that Mangus was threatened by Josh's lawyer to sick gang members on him in prison. In other words, Wyndham believed a felon in prison with a history of snitching over an attorney just out of law school. Wyndham said he believed, essentially, that Josh's attorney had committed the felony of tampering with a witness, and he believed that the actual felon was telling the truth. In his first interview with Mangus, Wyndham said he told the snitch that if he couldn't prove the allegation, he would come back and hit Mangus with filing a false police report. Yet, when the same witness tried to recant, he gave no such warning. And Wyndham did not investigate Rosner for this allegation of interfering with an investigation. Wyndham also testified that he didn't check into any of Josh's alibis in Kankakee, and Wyndham was the officer who was communicating with Cape Girardeau County Prosecutor Morley Swingle that the snitches were working with him. And that ultimately led to reduced sentences for these snitches. I believe that Wyndham had a severe case of tunnel vision. But regardless of the motive, he was critical in the wrongful conviction of Josh. And Josh claims he gave false testimony to do it. Again, Josh claims that Wyndham completely misrepresented the questioning in two areas. One, that he never pointed to Christy Nail's house. And two, that he never told the officer he used or was a good shot with a handgun. Again, the good shot commentary came up in the context of Josh's upbringing and the Boy Scouts. Josh said he told Wyndham he was a good shot by a Boy Scout shooting instructor. And remember, Josh was having these conversations not knowing he was being investigated for a murder. Josh believes that Wyndham belongs in this conversation about perjury. Now something else became evident as I was researching Wyndham's comments under oath. And what I'm about to talk about relates to Brenda Shivitz and her false testimony to the jury that Mark Abbott was not a witness at any time. In a deposition under oath, Josh's attorney, Al Lowe's, asked Wyndham, Did you ever consider this boy Mark Abbott was a suspect? To which Wyndham replied, At one point early because he found the body, 
The first thing you do in a homicide is the last person to see her, the first person to find her. You always think of those people as suspects. Okay, so that makes Wyndham a second law enforcement officer being on the record to contradict Shivitz's statement to the jury. First, it was Beardsley, whose name was written in Shivitz's notebook that she told the court had been destroyed. And now we have Wyndham under oath saying that, yes, at one point, Mark Abbott was a suspect. Now, keep in mind the context of this information. Wyndham told the court that Abbott was a suspect early on. And later, Wyndham would use this same suspect as a witness against Josh, who had alibis that Wyndham refused to check. Again, Wyndham was willing to fly down to Louisiana to talk to Mangus after he recanted, but not willing to drive to Kankakee to check Josh's alibis. And what I'm about to tell you makes it even tougher to defend Wyndham. He knew that Abbott had first described the person in the car as dark-complected, possibly Mexican or Latino or dark-skinned. He also knew, because it was in the report that he signed, that Abbott said he saw a ring on Michelle's hand. Wyndham should have known that was false. He knew that Abbott had first reported that the man in the car was wearing a sweater and then later changed it to a black leather jacket. He also knew Mark Abbott's description of the vehicle changed. And perhaps most disappointing and frustrating, in his report, which Wyndham signed months before Josh was charged, he wrote, quote, Abbott said Terry and Kevin Williams told him Ray Ring wanted to talk to him. Abbott then thought the subject he saw that night could have possibly been Ray Ring. After making that report, Wyndham interviewed Ray Ring with Bill Farrell. So Wyndham knew Ray Ring looked nothing like Josh. Even with all of that background, Wyndham chose to believe Mangus when he said the recantations were false because Josh attorneys threatened to send the Latin kings on him in prison. Wyndham chose to believe the lawyer committed a felony rather than to believe the felon was telling a lie. So while I might have cut Wyndham some slack in this case, to Josh it all leads to the same thing. Wyndham had every reason to step back, reevaluate the case, hit the brakes. But instead, Josh says, Wyndham twisted the truth to convict him. And then you get Mark Abbott, who has perjured himself from day one. Every statement that he's given to officers has been perjury. And we're not even talking about the, the aspects that implicate him as the killer. We're talking about everything from the rings to the window to, the, um, to leaving out that somebody was at a phone booth. And then the next day, like magic, like magic, the next day, he claims, oh, there was uh, someone who uh, pulled over who, you know, was a carload of Mexicans. Or I think he, you know, looked like it was Ray Ring at one point, and it was Carlo de Mexicans, and then it turned out to be a pale white kid from Northern Illinois. And he, he, you know, he leaves it out, and then he adds that in, 
and then he's changed. You know, his story's been all over the place, and it and it and it's changed so dramatically and drastically over time to the point that in your episode, you know, you list several points, and one of them that was left out, and that's uh, that's okay because I can bring it up, is his emails to me. And his email to me, the thing that we concentrate on in this um, specific sentence rant of Mark Abbott directed at me after I, you know, intentionally get under his skin, but online while he's emailing me, trying to game me, trying to play me like he has investigators and cops uh, in his depositions with his you tell me nonsense and his questionable nonsense. And, you know, it's the moral in him nonsense. I wasn't playing that. And we concentrate on his one response. Could have been a whore. She could have stole from old people. She could have been a crack whore. That's what we concentrate on because it's so repulsive. And it reveals his immorality rather than his morality. But we may miss the fact that he says, honestly, I couldn't remember what that girl looked like a week later. Mark said that in that message. So in that admission, those are in his words in an email directed to me from a federal institution to my private email. There's no way I can fabricate that. Those are his words. He claims in his own words that apparently any deposition, any statement, any testimony that he gave a week out of Michelle Lawless being murdered was perjury. So I'm going to choose to believe him. You didn't remember anything, did you, Mark? A week after you found that girl shot three times in her car. That's what you're saying. Isn't that a confession of perjury in 1994 during my murder trial where you intentionally gave a statement intended to convict me? Well, to take that a step further, just on on a on a logical sense, like he's not going to remember this horrific image that he comes upon, but he's going to remember a face that he saw for a few seconds at a payphone in the dark and be able to identify that person. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, apparently the person he identified Bob is um, a representative of the United nations of the world. Because that person was a light-skinned black man. Then he was a carload, not just a Mexican. I, I need his listeners to art understand this. Yeah. It was a carload of Mexicans. And then it was a kid from Northern Illinois in November. I may have a tan in July or June. If I go outside right now and I spend some time in the sun, I'm going to get a tan. But in November, in Kankakee, Illinois, just outside of Chicago, I was pale. Yeah, I was clearly and, Caucasian. And it was... Well, first of all, I know we've, we've talked about this a little bit, but first of all, it was Ray Ring. And again, that goes back to the, the perjury that we talked about in the last episode. Mm-hmm. But Ray Ring, you look even less like Ray Ring than you do Todd Mayberry, right? But I, mean, I guess is- it could be argued that at certain points I looked Italian. And if Ray Ring was a light-skinned Black man, Italians do have some Black lineage in their history. So I guess one could argue that Ray Ring and I may resemble, although I don't see it. Clearly, I'm being sarcastic right now. Right, right. Because anybody's going to believe my language because it's just ridiculous. It's It's all ridiculous. ridiculous. But what I'm getting to is, again, to reiterate the point, 
Yes. The document that mm -hmm. showed that the state's key witness identified someone who looked nothing like you. Absolutely. Was hidden from your attorneys. Absolutely. It was and clipped to document. the note. It was clipped to a notebook mm -hmm. that was said by Brenda Shivitz was destroyed and it was not destroyed. And who had who had control those notes? Who had control those notes? Who was in control of the investigation? Bill Farrell. So so here's the thing. It was it was Sheriff Bill Farrell. Now, just so we can remind uh, his uh, um, his his constituents and the followers of the lawless files. Bill Farrell, in his retirement speech, claimed that I was the pride of his the, the, the accomplishment of his entire tenure as sheriff. He was so proud of his work in that case. He was so incredibly proud of his work in convicting me. So when it's when it's been appropriate for Bill to claim the credit, he's claimed it. When it's been inappropriate, he's pushed it to the side. And the reality is this, that, you know, Bill Farrell and British Shevitz were in charge of the lawless murder investigation that resulted in my erroneous arrest, charging, trying, convicting, sentencing, exoneration, and then eventual lawsuit against Scott County. So that people can understand how typically these lawsuits are done, they last a while, Bob. They usually last a while, and there's a lot of resistance. And I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit for your people. This lawsuit didn't last that long, and there wasn't that much resistance. And it wasn't because Scott County didn't have any fight in that dog. They were willing to fight. The insurance company was willing to fight. The attorneys that represented the insurance company and Bill Farrell and Brenda Shivitz were willing to fight. But they discovered very quick there was no point. The evidence that we had was so damning against Bill and against Brenda that the only option that they had was to settle. That was it. That was it. And I got my money and I walked. And I did that so that I can continue to live my life peacefully. But just so we're clear, that settlement wasn't had because my case was weak. That settlement was had because my case was strong, incredibly strong. I've already proved it just hasn't been prosecuted. What is the step that the step moving forward that um, we need to take? Um, as citizens, as voters, um, as elected officials, you know, because we're all in this together, uh, whether um, a Kevin Zellner likes that or not. He once told me that you know, we're not in this together. Well, Mr. Zellner, yes, we are, because I vote and I pay taxes. And the last time I checked, I was the man that Bill Farrell tried to put on death row. So like it or not, we're in this together. And what we need to do is figure out a way to do something that Missouri, apparently prosecutors in Missouri, um, according at least to the, uh, the, uh, the podcast episode, episode 20 of the Lawless Files, um, that uh, uh, Sean O'Brien, 
and yourself came to the conclusion of how do, how, how do we get these prosecutors to prosecute something that's never been prosecuted since the institution of law? Was this, was this law passed simply as a pacifier to say, hey, we want, it, we want the death penalty back in Missouri. So let's just pacify our opponents and pass this law that says we'll protect innocent men and women from the death, from the death sentence by passing this perjury law that puts some teeth into perjury in case someone lies or someone perjures himself, whether it be a citizen or a law enforcement officer, let's, let's pacify. Is that, is that, is that what's happening as it, here? Is that what's happened since 1977? Because when I, what I heard in an interview, I didn't hear in the interview personally, or what I heard and what I didn't hear, neither you or Sean said, well, there's one or two cases since 1977, you, you both came to a conclusion, a journalist came to a conclusion, and a law professor came to a conclusion that there has never been a case in the history of Missouri where perjury has been prosecuted as an A felony in, in a murder trial. Yeah. <clears throat> and that is, you know, I, I, I don't have an adequate word for that. I had words running through my head that I don't have an adequate word for that. I'm 47 years old. I was born in 1975. That's a 45-year-old law. And in 45 years, and in hundreds of cases, thousands of murder cases, and even in, I would venture to say, in the tens of thousands of murder cases in Missouri that have been tried, even in the majority of, even if the majority of them are guilt cases, even in those there's cases of perjury, mm -hmm. whether or not it be um, law enforcement or it be um, you know, just some average Joe, some guy lied, right? And, and, but specifically, how many cases did you and Sean come up with that have been exonerated? It's like well over like, it's like over 50. I found 50 in an online search. Um, I, I think from the Kansas City Star, maybe, um, that there's been 50. Uh... So from a surface search, this is not just cases that have been overturned and retried, because there's been a lot of those, okay? There's probably been much more of those, but just on innocence cases alone, right? 50 cases that you found, right? Mm -hmm. And in 50 cases, not one has ever been tried, not one. Now, how does that instill trust in the justice system of this country? How does that instill um, integrity into the platforms of our prosecutors and our elected officials? Yeah. You know, they claim that they're hard on crime. I'm a hard on crime voter. This might... Um, take your uh, your listeners by surprise, but you know this. I vote typically conservative Republican because I'm hard on crime voter. I'm a pro life voter. I'm I'm a red, white, and blue voter. That's who I am, right? But it makes it real difficult for me to cast those ballots for those who claim those things, and most of them are Republicans when apparently it's hypocrisy 
when that platform is hypocrisy. If the platform does not include follow through and, and the intents on following the rule of the law, then it is a hypocritical platform. And if since 1977, no prosecutor and most of your prosecutors in Missouri have been Republicans, or at least a huge majority, and we'll just say 50% of them, right? If you want to split it down the middle just for political debate, okay? No prosecutor since 1977 has ever prosecuted, ever prosecuted a uh, perjury um, that has been uh, committed in a murder trial. They've never charged anybody with an A felony. They've just let someone lie. They almost put me on death row, Bob. Yep. And, and if you want to take the death row part out of it, because, well, Josh Kuser didn't face death row when he went to trial. No, I just faced the rest of my life in prison. I just faced the rest of my life in a, in a specific prison that is now um, uh, host, that now hosts haunted house tours, that hosts um, historical tours and boasts of the violence conducted in that prison demonstrated in that prison while I was in there. That's all they did to me, Bob. All they did to me is send me to live with rapists and killers and child molesters. All they did is send me to war for, th for 16 years, for nearly 16 total years, well, 365 yeah. days a year. They sent you there for 60. They sent me there for 60. Yeah. I end up doing 16, but you're yeah. correct. That's correct. You can correct me on that. I appreciate that. You know, they, the, all that's all they did, but they attempted to put me in there when I went to trial. Let's get it correct. That wasn't their goal. Their goal was to put me in prison for with life without parole. I was tried for first degree murder. Meanwhile, the perjurers, these liars, deliberate liars, deliberate perjurers in Bill Farrell, Brenda Shivitz, Don Wyndham, Mark Abbott, um, God rest his soul, I won't mention Sean Mangus, but Steve Graw, Wade Howard, uh, um, uh, Chantel Kreider. And we can even, I, I'm willing to even leave Chantel off that list to some extent because at least she, she made some right in 2008. But these deliberate perjurers get to live their lives and they get to be celebrated and they get to be, they get to have retirements and they get to have families and they get to, they get to live normal lives. While my mother, up until the day she passed away of COVID in 2020, lived with depression and PTSD and alcoholic dementia induced by her depression and PTSD, induced by the false allegations against her son, induced by the false conviction of her son. While my father, who was so horrified about what happened to his son and where he was, couldn't get himself to visit his son in prison because it traumatized him, it debilitated him. They get to live normal lives. They don't, they don't, that's justice. I, I was under the impression, Bob, I don't, I'm, I'm sure you were under the impression and your listeners are under the impression that no one is above the law. That's not fair. That's not living in an equitable society, Bob. That's living in a society that empowers corruption and empowers injustice and that dismisses the rights of our citizens 
and ignores the justice that our victims deserve. Michelle Lawless deserves more than this. She's deserved better than this from the beginning. And quite frankly, for those to those who say, well, that girl, she lived a certain way. How dare you? Disrespectful. How dare you? She was a she was a 19 year old college student who was living life. She was an all American girl. Whatever she was, whatever she did, however she lived her life, she didn't deserve to get brutally murdered on the side of a highway. And what she did deserve was justice. What she did deserve was what she did not get. She deserved an investigation that did not that did not involve manufacturer of evidence, Bob. She deserved an investigation that did not involve Bill Farrell sitting alone in a room with Mark Abbott that was in an undocumented meeting. She did not deserve Bill Farrell telling Beardsley, don't go investigate this kid, leave it alone, let him twist in the wind. She did not deserve Brenda Shivitz facilitating that clandestine meeting in the room. And that's something we didn't go over earlier, but you went over in in your interview with with, um, Beardsley that she facilitated that, that meeting. She was standing outside watching for when Beardsley came in and was the one that told Beardsley that Mark Abbott is alone in the room with Bill. What she did not deserve is having um, uh, the, the highway patrol kowtow to Bill Farrell as if he was God, that he was untouchable, because that's apparent that that's what it looks like to me. So what she did not deserve It's Judge Stanley Murphy siding with attempts at deliberately hiding evidence from the jury, which is what Kenny Holshoff did when he did not allow the report, Don Wyndham, and Todd Mayberry to testify to rebut um, um, Chantel Kreider. And what she damn sure didn't deserve is having her actual killer testify and pretend to be her hero at her trial, what she deserved was far more than that. Pardon me. I realized that at the beginning of this, I'm cool, calm, and collected. The more I talk about this, the little bit more I get worked up. That's, that's the reality of it. So when people say, well, you know, he's making this too personal. This ain't about him. You're right. It's not about me, but you're, but you're also right. It is personal. It's personal because I've made it personal because Michelle Wallace is not here to make it personal for her. So I do that for her. I do that for her. When you see me moving forward, if you choose not to see Josh Keezer, and so be it. But what you're seeing, what you're seeing is the avatar for Michelle Wallace. And I'm not going to give up. And as far as I'm concerned, prosecutors in this case, Law enforcement now in charge of this case, which is in the highway patrol. They need to consider perjury charges. They need to consider them because they help us get closer to the truth of what happened. And I would like there to be a further investigation, uh, not just into perjury regarding uh, Chantel Kreider, um, but in regarding a connection to a manufacturing of evidence and information to intentionally taint and redirect a trial that came from Bill Farrell himself, uh, because that's criminal manufacturing of evidence. And that itself um, is a felony. 
So it, it, it's a separate felony from, from perjury, um, but it itself is a felony. And I believe that bill needs to be pursued in, in all these angles. And, um, and I've, never, I've never received um, the proper criminal investigation of what happened to me. This wasn't an accident, Bob. This wasn't a civil mistake. This was intentional. This was intentional, what happened to me. So that pretty much wraps up this episode and getting Josh's thoughts about perjury and some of the other episodes we've done recently. Clearly, and this should surprise no one, Josh has some pretty strong thoughts about this subject. Just a real quick update here. After the last episode on perjury was released, I received a text from Rick Walter who said he informed former prosecutor Paul Boyd that Mark Abbott had lied on the stand and that some former cops did too. Obviously, that information went nowhere. Some people I've talked to about the perjury idea have had some different reactions. My thought process, as I've stated before, is that if you think as the prosecutor that too much reasonable doubt exists to get a conviction for murder, then perjury is a way to seek justice, with the same potential consequences as murder. Those who lied in Josh's trial are responsible for sending Josh to prison for 16 years. That's a serious crime. But if current investigators and prosecutors play their cards right, perjury charges could be the first domino to fall in getting to the truth about Michelle's murder as well. My thinking is, is if you lose the perjury case, you've not lost the chance of murder charges in the future. Most of the people I talk to agree with this sentiment, but others think, well, if you lose the perjury charge, you almost certainly damage the murder case. I guess that's possible. I, you know, There's no answers to this. There's no crystal ball, but... My answer to that is, well, it's been 30 years with no justice. I mean, the men most likely to have killed Michelle have gone 30 years with no consequences. Another 30 years, and they'll probably no longer be here. Thank you for joining us on The Lawless Files. I'm your host, Bob Miller. If you've made it all the way here into the episode, I'd like to say thank you. And I'm going to take a moment to ask for your financial support. This work takes time, it takes money, and it takes resources. I do this work because it's a passion, because I find it meaningful and rewarding, even if it's sometimes dark and depressing and maybe even dangerous. I do this for the victims, the families, and for those who have been wronged by our system. If you believe there is value to the work I'm doing and want me to continue, I need your help. If you're listening to The Lawless Files on one of the podcast streaming platforms, that probably means you're not a paid access supporter. Paid supporters can get ad-free listening, plus early bird access to certain episodes, as well as other materials associated with the Michelle Lawless case. If you'd like to see my work continue, please consider paying $36 for a year's worth of benefits with the paid access pass. That averages to just $3 a month, which is a lot less than other media and podcast subscriptions. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. 
by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. That's less than $2 per episode. But you can contribute above and beyond a paid subscription by donating any amount on our website at www.thelawlessfiles.com. We can't do it without your support. Again, go to thelawlessfiles.com and look for the Become a Supporter button at the top of the page. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files.